So today's text is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Okay, good. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he, he, he inaugurated for us through the veil that is flesh, that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. And so I have this um, sermon titled as Let Us Hold to the Confession of Hope. And I do want to spend um, some chunk of time addressing the question why we have um, the confidence to enter the holy place. But I want to ask, um, start with a question asking the kids why did people sacrifice animals? Why did people sacrifice animals in the Old Testament? Anyone bold enough to say out loud? Yeah? So they didn't have to sacrifice humans. And why did they wanna, don't want to sacrifice humans? Okay. All right. Anyone else? They sacrifice animals. Oh, wait, wait, I see the hand. Representation of Jesus Christ. Yes, that's a good answer. Yeah. So, in summary, animals are sacrificed because of our sin. We see animal sacrifice all the way beginning with the book of Genesis, from the moment that our father and mother Adam and Eve have sinned. And so from that point on, we see animal sacrifice. So imagine you are Adam and Eve. You, have, you don't know what death is. And from the moment you have uh, God created you and you open your eyes, you are in a place without sin. You're in a place without suffering, without death. You don't know what rash is. But, well, they enjoyed this full privilege. Um, now, because they sinned, they get to witness the first death. They get to taste what death is. And so the moment they sent, they feel vulnerable. They feel naked. And so what does, how does God cover their nakedness? With the skin of? With the skin of an animal. Yes. Just to cover their 
nakedness. And so, since then, since that moment, you have countless of deaths of animals. Countless. And that is what the uh, beginning of chapter 10 of, of Hebrews is addressing. Right before verse 19, from chapter uh, 10, verse 1, it is talking about Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice. So what was the consequence of sin? What was the consequence of sin of Adam and Eve? It brought curse, it brought suffering, pain, right? The nature that uh, the tree was there and gave fruit for Adam and Eve to consume. But now, because of the curse, they have to work hard, sweat to produce little food, and Eve has to bear children in, in hard and painful labor. And those are secondary consequences. The primary consequence of the fall is the, the death. It's first and foremost the death, and God hates sin. God's anger and judgment awaits for all sinners. And Jesus, who we know as the preacher of mercy, compassion, he spent a lot of time with the poor, right? He healed, he consoled. He spent a lot of time with the sinners and the oppressed. But he is also the preacher who preached the most about hell. He preached against unrighteousness, and he showed his anger, right? Now, when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and there was this separation that was created. And so in God, there is no sin. And as Adam and Eve sinned, they were driven out of Garden of Eden. And similarly, when Israelites um, wandering through the desert, they built a tabernacle by the instruction of God. And later, they built the temple. And there, where God dwelt, the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, the room where the uh, Ark of the Covenant was there, right? That was supposed to be the dwelling place of God. But even then, when God was dwelling in the midst of the Israelites, there was a separation between God and the people. There was a thick veil that separated the room, what we call Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place, the Holy Place, whatever we call it. There was a separation between people and God, and people were able to approach God with the blood of the animals. And even the high priest was only able to enter the place once a year with thorough cleansing ceremony once a year. And even then, when you did all that ceremony, the high priest entered the place with great fear that in the hope that God would not strike him dead. That is the separation that we see. And also, from the moment of they were kicked out, Adam and Eve, and when uh, you, do, you also see as uh, Adam and Eve uh, names their firstborn son Cain in hope of a redeemer. You see with Abraham as he is called out from the city 
of the pagan city and as he's wandering in the desert in the hope of longing to have a child. And as Moses is leading people, the exodus from Egypt, wandering in the desert with so many people, in those moments when David is hoping to build a temple and the prophets, all the, throughout the Old Testament, I'm just really quickly summarizing the Old Testament here. The prophets seeing the wickedness of the kings, of their people, and the sins of the other nations. In all these stories, we see them hoping in someone, right? They're hoping for someone. They're hoping for a savior. They are hoping for a redeemer. And they're hoping that because God has promised to give them a savior, a king who will come and return and restore everything. Now that great king, that great redeemer that we are talking about is Jesus Christ. And these forefathers knew in faith that they were going to be a savior who would rescue them from God's wrath, from his eternal and mighty judgment. And so meanwhile, they sacrificed animals over and over and over again. Now the question is, does sacrificing animals cleanse us from our sin? For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So, no. It does not take away our sins. But what's the purpose of sacrificing so many animals and witnessing so many deaths and spilling so many blood and so many animals being burned at the altar? Well, Well, basically, I'm trying to look for the verse. Um, <clears throat> in chapter 10, it says, the purpose was for us to be reminded of our own sin. All these animal sacrifices reminds us of our own sin. And the numerous, countless animals that were sacrificed just shows the daily sin that is present within us within us, within our family, the nation. Now, those animals that did not cleanse of our sin, with that in mind, why or how did Jesus rescue us? How did Jesus rescue us? He is, he is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the sacrificial lamb. When John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, he said, what? Lo and behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, in our stead, countless animals were being killed. And Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, received the penalty he took God's wrath to die in our place. So that's how he saved us. That's how he is saving us still today. Jesus took the punishment by dying on the cross. And so that's what 
that's where we ground our confidence in. That's why we have the confidence to enter the Holy of Holies, or the presence of God, the veil that separated between the people and God, that veil is lifted at the crucifixion, the night where the day where Jesus died on the cross. What happened to the veil? It tore from top to bottom. He inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So Christ died for our sins once and for all. And he is the ultimate sacrifice. And he is the high priest who intercedes for us. That is the privilege we have um, as followers of Christ. The people in the Old Testament, they did not have um, the full scripture, right? Even though they didn't have the full scripture that we have, they knew and they had the hope, and they knew that God would send them a Savior. And because, as I said before, it's because God has promised them. They only saw a distant figure. They didn't exactly know how it was going to happen. They have been prophesying, they have been having this hope. And even though it seemed distant, because of their promise, God, they had hope. Now let's look at uh, Psalm 130. What the psalmist say. Um, what the psalmist has to say about hope. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now the psalmist knows, based on verse 3, you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? He knows that the sin of man is great to bear. Even the slightest, the smallest sin of man is enough to condemn him in the eternal hell. But also the psalmist knows something in verse 5. He says, and in his word do I hope. And how does he know that the word gives him hope? For with the Lord, there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now the psalmist lived long before Jesus. But now we, today, we have, we are in possession of the word of God. We know this, by this possession of this great treasure in the cloud of witnesses, Testifies to us, testifying to us what Christ has done. We know that he died for our sins. The psalmist has this great hope, even without this full revelation that we are in possession of. But even then, he had this great hope. And now, us, we should have even greater hope, right? We know that Christ died for our sins. He saw this in the distance, hoping for that to happen. And today, we are in full possession 
we are freed from the bondage of sin and death. And that is the hope of the gospel. Now is this good news, this message, the gospel, is it too complicated? No. This message doesn't require a scholar to interpret for us what gospel means, right? It is a simple message of hope. It is a simple confession of faith. And this message is our hope. Is this message too simple? Is the gospel too simple? And when I was just summarizing this hope of the gospel, how many of you thought, I know it already? I know the story already. I know how it goes. Can we move on to the good stuff? Many of us grew up listening to who Jesus is, what he has done since our childhood in our upbringing, maybe Sunday school, maybe you have gone to Sunday services enough for you to hear over and over again, yep, I know who Jesus is, I know what he has done. That, brothers and sisters, is the dullness of our hearts. We've heard it many times, and since we're used to it, we want to hear something New, something innovative, something different. Of course, you might be also thinking, ah, not me, I have not grown dull, that's not me. We don't want to admit it, but there are many of us who think that way. But sometimes it is shown not in our thoughts, but in our attitudes. Well, I guess a better way of asking the question is, are you even aware that you are growing dull? When you just hear the simple message of the gospel, does it bring you hope? Or is it just a boredom? Are you aware whether your heart is growing dull? Our hearts are deceptive. That's, that's what our hearts does is it is deceptive. You may say, okay, maybe there's a little dullness, but that's not my fault for the dullness of my heart. Um, Whenever we do find ourselves growing dull, um, one of the tendencies we we tend to do is shifting that blame to others. Yeah, it's the pastor, it's the church, And that may be the case, and maybe before you came to this church, that may have been your experience as well. Um, But at the end of the day, we are accountable of our own sin. At the end of the day, when we are growing dull, and when we are listening to the simple gospel message, we uh, are bored, there's no conviction, that is our sin not someone else's. And so, and so we have to remind ourselves how deceptive our heart is. 
we have to constantly remind ourselves how deceptive our heart is. Um, because we have forgotten how sick and disgusting our sins are, we become tired of celebrating God's faithfulness, His work of redemption, and we make sin, the word sin, into some kind of archaic, poet, poetic word that is distant and impersonal. We make the word sin into something that is a museum display, a force of nature. But sin is the very corruption that eats us away into the eternal damnation that is worthy of eternal judgment. And when we forget how disgusting and deadly the sin is, the gospel becomes tiresome, boring. It also becomes offensive to us. We change the gospel then into something that is unrecognizable. The simplicity of the gospel is changed into something that is more innovative. The, chain, the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel that, is, that can really pierce your heart and can be hurtful changes into something that is all nice and decorative. There is no such thing as graduating from the gospel. We are tempted to move away from the simplicity. Now let's move on to the deeper theological topics. Doctrine this, doctrine that. Oh, that's the good theological deep theological stuff that every mature Christian needs. And that is especially true for some of you guys who have jumped into the Reformed theology wagons. Those who used to be in, maybe in broad evangelical churches that do preach shallow gospel message and in, in, in a reacting against the shallow gospel message, your motto is now Deep theology is always better. Complicated theology is always better. And I'm not saying that we don't need theology. We do have to study the Word at the end of the day. I mean, we are studying the Word. That's what, that's what we do as Christians. But at the end of the day, what good is theology if we can't ground it to the simple message of the Gospel? God made the Gospel simple and easy to understand for all men. It's not a complicated story. It is simple, and that is by God's design for all mankind to hear and understand. So, let's not make mockery of the gospel because of its simplicity. We need the gospel every single day. Taste the mercy and the loving kindness of God. Every morning, every evening, only then can we enter the holy place in confidence, with sincere heart, with assurance, when we understand the frailty and weakness of ourselves. And there is no gospel when there is no sin. Where there's no sin, there's no gospel. What can we do to enter the holy place? place in the presence of God? Is there anything we can do to enter the holy place? And the answer is nothing. 
There's nothing we can do for ourselves to gain any merit, credibility, gain favor with God. There's nothing. And this, what I'm saying, is not a new problem either. This is what we see also in the Bible when Paul and the apostles and other writers of um, the New Testament writers, they're fighting against a group of people called Judaizers. Am I pronouncing it correctly? Judah. Yes. That. They're a group of people that say in Acts 15, you see the story of Council of Jerusalem. That's the very first council you see in the church history. And what, why, they were, why were they meeting? That's because they were a group of Jews who left Jerusalem to t- teach, not in the permission of the apostles, but who walked around and preached about, by circumcision and the Mosaic laws, you are saved. And that line is repeated twice. And then again promoted by the Pharisees in Jerusalem. Christians who are Pharisees. That is not a new fight. That is not a new problem. And when we, when we think of that, the Judaizers who did that, who promote um, keeping of the law, and we now, in the current context, we may think of some group of people as well, Right? Maybe some of you guys are thinking, oh yeah, the Roman Catholics, right? They officially state that you are saved by faith and works. You might be thinking of other group of Christians who say that if you break the law of God, you will lose your salvation. But guess what? It's always easy to point a finger at someone, isn't it? It's easy to blame I mean, we can easily look at the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and point out all their errors in their doctrine. But before we look at others, we have to examine ourselves first. That's what we have to do. So let's not point fingers, at least not now. Before you do, look at your own heart and see what your heart whispers. And let's check what gives us the confidence. What creates the confidence in us? What makes you feel good about yourself? Simple, simple things that everyone experiences, that I myself can experience, is I pray every single day. I read my Bible. I, matter of fact, I pray 25 hours a day. Not only do I attend church every Sunday, I attend it eight times a day. I mean, eight times a week, you know, or whatever I'm trying to say. Um, I go above and beyond, right? Unlike these people, I go above and beyond. That gives me confidence. I'm even reformed. But all these things are vain excuses How can we boast about having deep theological knowledge when the devil himself knows so much better about the Scripture than we do? How can we boast about those little works when our hearts constantly and endlessly produce idols? Whenever I think of 
us relying on our performance, gaining confidence for ourselves to get better seat in heaven or whatever the reason is. There was a comic book that I was reading when I was young, and there was this guy who was drowning, and he was grabbing his own hair, trying to pull himself out of the water, trying to save himself from drowning. You can pull on your hair all day long to save yourself from drowning. And when you think about that image, it's just comical, it's laughable. But that's how we are. That's what we constantly tend to do. A dead man cannot give himself life. A dead man is a dead man. And that's what we all were. Dead in our sins. And God gave us life. God gave us life. And that's why we are here today. We constantly overestimate ourselves and forget how deadly and deceptive the sin is. And so, again, let me ask you, how do we enter the holy, holy place with assurance, with sincere heart, and with confidence? It is by the confession that Jesus Christ alone has done the work for us. There's nothing we can do or say, but it is by the work of Christ alone that we can have the confidence and the assurance. It is by the simple faith of confession that Jesus has died for our sins. Now, let me read part of, a part of Psalm 38. When we hear about sin, there are many ways we respond to it, but there are particular, two particular ways I want to address. So Psalm 38, written by David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath, and chasten me not in your burning anger. For your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. For my loins are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, even that has gone from me. So as I'm reading this passage, and you see this response of David to his own sin, there are people who will say, anger of God, aren't we reading about confidence and assurance to enter the holy place? Well, David exaggerating a, a little bit too much, isn't he? And so yeah, that's the... That's the thing that I've been addressing the whole time. The dullness of our heart when we hear how people are reacting to sin. It's like, ah, that's an overreaction. Oh, come, let's talk something about something a little bit more positive. That comes from the dullness of our heart. But then there's the second response as well. And those people are also disturbed by, when I read this passage, 
and they are disturbed because they can completely relate to what, is, what David is feeling. They can also feel the, every ounce of pain and suffering in their bones by their own sin. Day by day, week by week, month by month. But that can be also another dangerous ditch that we can fall into. So why is that a danger? Didn't I just say that we need to be convicted by our own sin? Don't we, we, we be keenly aware of how dangerous and deceptive our sin is? Yes, but it's a danger. It is a danger if we are burdened by it and we stay in that burden. We stay in that state. The forgiveness has been preached to us. But my sin is greater than the forgiveness of God. That is another dangerous ditch we can fall into. Don't we serve a God who is faithful? Don't we serve a God who forgives? Don't we serve a God who sent His only begotten Son, clothed in flesh, to sympathize with us? Has not Christ won the victory over sin and death? But when the burden of sin is greater than the forgiveness of God, that is also an idolatry. And so how does David respond? Okay, so we have that picture of David just suffering from his own sin. And so I want to read Psalm 32 of David's, again, also David's response to his own sin. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with a fever heat of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you. In my iniquity, I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin, Selah. Therefore, let, a, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bits and brittle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. And shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. That is the same David who was groaning, moaning, weeping over his sin. This is also the same David who fully, who has the full confidence in the God that he serves. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. 
But he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. He perfectly knows how destructive the sin is and how much God hates sin. But at the same time, he finds comfort in God, who is all-loving and forgiving. And he knows that God wants his children to come to him, fully trusting him. So let me read again from Hebrews 22, 10-22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now I just want to make one like, uh, quick last point before I finish. Which is from verse 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so we talked about the confession, our confession to God, our relationship to God, right? Our complete dependence on Him, this vertical relationship. But we cannot forget this horizontal relationship either. And so some of you maybe are maybe wondering, how does that have, the confession exactly have to do with this horizontal relationship? What's exactly the connection? Um, The command of, I just want to start by saying, this command of stimulate one another to love and good deeds is not a command just for the pastors or just for the officers of the church. It's for every single one of us. It's a command for every single one of us in the church. Um, whenever Paul, you see letters of Paul and the apostles, they, give, they talk about the doctrine of the gospel. They instruct, this is the gospel message. But then they also always talk about how the church should live together. He's rebuking them because of their sins, how they're not loving one another, or just being encouraged that they are growing together as a church. Uh, we have cultivated this culture of individualism where we go to church in and out. I've heard the sermon, now I'm out, right? Uh, I mean, my good friend also, you know, told me, yeah, uh, I, I mean, I do want to go to church, but man, I hate talking to people, right? That is very common. That is very, very common. It's, it's nothing new. It's very common today. Um, there are so many of us who don't see the need of a church, um, and especially since COVID, the number of people that have watched um, service online dramatically increased, right? And I also see so many comments, so many, every single time, whenever there is online debate, um, 
in the comment section of a social media. I shouldn't be spending too much time on it, but when you read over and over again, so many people say, I don't need a church. I have a relationship with my God, and that's all I need. I am the bride of Christ. That's also another common phrase. I am the bride of Christ. I don't need a church. I am the bride of Christ. But guess what? Christ came for the church. The church is the bride. Jesus doesn't have many brides. He has the church as his bride. And forsaking the church means forsaking the means of the gospel, the body of Christ. It is a command of God for us to the life together as a church. And you see so many everywhere in the, in the Bible. I mean, 1 Corinthians 12, talking about our body being many members, even the imagery of Jesus being the great shepherd and us being the sheep. Where two or three are gathered, I'm amongst you. We shouldn't be surprised that Hebrews commands, um, that Hebrews commands us not to forsake our assembly. Now, that is also closely connected to Jesus' new commandment. So, you know the phrase, when I, when I say, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, right? From 1 Corinthians 11, whenever you take communion, you guys read that passage. That night when Jesus was betrayed, he gave a new commandment. What does he say? So he, he, he shared the cup, the bread. And whenever we drink the cup, eat the bread, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, right? Also the phrase from 1 Corinthians 11. On that very night, he says, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And he repeats again, even closer to the time where he gets arrested. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his, his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So this was his commandment, to love one another just as Jesus has loved his disciples. That is his commandment on the night he was betrayed, on the night he was arrested, on the night he broke the bread and shared the cup. And so we have to throw away the thoughts um, that just sitting under preaching, just listening to the sermon is enough for a transformation. A sermon is a catalyst for sure for our transformation, for our sanctification, for us to grow in our holiness, definitely. But we can't just expect the sermon to do the work for us. Part of our growing holiness, growing in love of God, growing in our fear of God, learning how to love your wife, learning how to submit to your husband, dis uh, disciplining your children, loving your children, learning about our own sins, all these things. 
we learn by doing life together as a church. Transformation does just, doesn't automatically happen just because I'm listening to some lectures, to some online. I'm listening to R.C. Sproul all the time, you know. That is not enough for the transformation of our hearts in our lives with others. Also, we have to throw away the beliefs that uh, you don't need anyone to meddle uh, with your private life. It's easy to think that way when you consider the faith, when we consider the, our faith to be a uh, religion of individualism. But the Christian faith is not individualism. It's not just about yourself and God, but it's about Christ and His church. I'm still single, and many couples tell me, uh, you know, when people marry, you find out, you find out about the sins of your wife, of of your husband. Um, you get to know the person a bit too well, and so you have conflicts. You love, you know, you get married. You are all in this lovey-dovey love. And then one year passes by just by the fact how you hang the toilet paper. I mean, I've heard, now, I mean, this is not, of course, not my personal experience. I'm just saying what I've heard. <laughs> Conflicts happen. And I'm sure, married couples, I hope you can testify to what I'm just saying, right? And even as a high school teacher, I see daily conflicts among the students. I mean, how many hours do they spend every single day, those students? The high school that I'm teaching is very small. I'm teaching all the 10th and 11th graders. It's a Christian church. So I'm teaching all the 10th and 11th graders because the Bible class is a required class, and I'm teaching the Bible. And I have a total of 38 students. That's all the 10th and 11th graders. Big school, right? And with those number of students... They spend, what, seven hours, eight hours a day? And if you play sports, that's an additional, what, two hours? And because, just by the pure fact, whether they're friends or not, because they spend so much time together, there's always friction. And they don't even have to tell me that there is friction. I can just see by their face expression and body posture as they walk into the classroom. And I'm like, oh yeah, I can see those three guys. Weren't they friends yesterday? Now they're arch nemesis, you know? <clears throat> and also, by the fact that I'm spending a lot of time with them, they get to see my ugly side. You know, I'm not as uh, clean and professional all the time. I do get very irritated and angry with those high school students. And they see my ugly side, maybe too often, but I can't control that when you spend a lot of time with people. And that, but that's what life is, doing life together. Gospel doesn't mean, as a Christian, living as a church doesn't mean it's going to be all rosy flowers and cotton candy. Imagine just like a little slice of life of a family you have a little toddler in the middle of a room, living room, just squeezing 
dump, I mean, what I mean to say is taking a dump in the middle of the living room. <laughs> you, you have uh, the third youngest who is like picking on his nose and trying to, you see the, the child trying to clean his bugger on the couch. Second child is spilling, is spilling orange juice over, over the dinner table. The mother is yelling for someone to prepare the dinner table. The father is in the backyard trying to take care of a dead raccoon. You know? I mean, it can, it's, can, it can be messy. Every single day, there's always something happening as you're living as a family. Natural conflicts occur. You rub shoulders with people. You will be disappointed by your own family members, right? You will be disappointed. You will be hurt, but you will also receive encouragement. Maybe sometimes you don't even know you uh, need encouragement until you actually do receive the, you, uh, when you actually do receive it. People admonish, urge you, exhort you, rebuke you. That is part of family. That's what family is like. And that is also the church. Joining Trinity Reformed Church, I didn't know that I was so disconnected with the youth and the children. When they asked me, hey, join the youth group, be a youth group leader. The very first thought was, I don't think I've talked to a single high school student over 10 years. I was scared. And now I'm teaching them, but, and I was disconnected from the elderly. I did not realize how much I was disconnected. I was living in this perfect bubble of college ministry life. That was my church, but that's not your church. I needed exhortation. I needed rebuke because I am blind to myself. I am just blind to what my sins are. But people, the pastors, the elders, and even my fellow peers, Daniel Froman who came here, I mean, we spend time together and we will rebuke one another. Hey, Daniel, I saw you do this and that. You say this and that. And he will approach me and he will do the same thing. And it stings but we know we love each other very, very much. And so we push one another and challenge one another to be better brothers of Christ. So church is essential when it comes to our faith. And so let me just quickly remind into three points of what I, everything that I've said. First, I mean, summarizing what it means to hold fast to the confession of hope without wavering be sensitive to your sin. Know your sin. Know what your sins are. Unless, unless you are aware of your sin, you also won't realize how much you are in need of a Savior. Number two, remember that we, um, remember that we do have the Savior who died for our sins. He has won the victory, and he has, freed from, he has freed us from the bondage of sin. Because we know how helpless we are against our sin. That's the more reason to come to God with confidence. And number three, do not forsake gathering together as a church. We are here as a church to love one another, to encourage one another, to remind us this confession of hope, confession of hope to one another. Admonish one another to the fear of God, rebuke one another in love when a brother dwells in sin. Church is our family. 